be seated, and I'd like to welcome our brother, Mark Clausen, to deliver our message this morning. As always, it's good to be back with you once again, although I wasn't sure I was going to make it this morning, given the traffic situation in Cincinnati. They must do things differently down here than they do where I'm from. They don't close whole interstates. Oh, well. That's a side note. If, you, if I could ask you to please turn your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1. I'll be reading this morning from verses 14 through 32 and focusing this morning in the sermon on verses 16 and 17. But a little word first. Why am I doing this? As most of you know, and all of you should know, this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. When Martin Luther, we should know this too, uh, posted his call for a debate, an academic debate, by the way, on the church door of Wittenberg Castle, and he was a university professor at the time, calling for a debate on the issue of indulgences. And that begins the official, that's the official beginning of the Reformation for those of us who celebrate this, and all Protestants ought to celebrate this. A crucial moment, and I call the sermon the Reformation Moment. So this is a moment in time when things change drastically, and as they should have, and by God's grace and his movement providentially in history, they did change. So we're going to be focusing on what Luther, what Luther found, what Luther discovered in Romans that caused such a stir later on. So I'll be reading from verses 14 to 32, as I said. Hear now the word of God. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with the passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men 
and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do that, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, I ask this morning that you would give understanding to each of us from your word, that we would receive it with a desire to put it into practice in our lives, and that your Holy Spirit would work with that word both to give us that understanding, to give us that desire to put it into practice, and finally, Father, to actually put it into practice, to live out our faith as we find it in your word. Father, help us to do your will. Help me to preach your word clearly and accurately. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, the Reformation was a back-to-the-Bible movement. That's how I like to characterize it. And so when we talk about what Luther found... We talk about what he found in the Bible. I'll get to that more in a moment. Luther is the founder of the Reformation, at least the official founder of the Reformation. There were other reformers at the time, but he was the first and the one who really got things going, so to speak. He lived a troubled conscience. Now, that's something some people know and many people don't. He had been told that one should do the best he could And then God would owe him grace. Let me read an excerpt from that very kind of thinking from the very time period in which Luther lived. This is by a a theologian named Gabriel Beale, writing about how one stood righteous before a holy God. You ask what it means for a man to do what what is in him. Alexander of Hales answers as follows. If we want to know what it means for one to do what is in him, let let us first note that every man by nature possesses right reason. This uprightness of reason consists of a natural understanding of what is good. It is given to every man by the Creator, and by by it every soul can know its origin, God. It knows further that it should seek the good from its Creator, that all men should beg what they still lack from their origin. If a man acts in accordance with his innate knowledge... And directs his will to him whom he knows to be his praiseworthy creator, and he does what is in him. This is generally what it means for any man to do what is in him. And we get to the end, and he says this. So Alexander, uh, from this we can now say that he does what is in him, who illumined by the light of natural reason, or of faith, or of both, knows the baseness of sin, and having resolved to depart from it, desires the divine that is grace, by which he can cleanse himself and cling to God, his maker. To the one who does this, God necessarily grants grace, but by a necessity based on the immutability of his decisions. What do you mean by this? He meant that if you do the best you can, 
God owes you grace, as if you'd signed a contract with God. I do this, you legally owe me this. This is how people thought about salvation in the late Middle Ages. This is what Luther read as he was being trained as a theologian. This is what he believed until he was converted. And this was what Luther's problem was in living his life until he was converted. So the big question is this. How does a person stand righteous before a holy God? The question everyone had wanted to know since the beginning of Christianity. Everyone needs to know that. How does a person stand righteous before a holy God? The central question of all theology. But it's also the central question for each and every individual to answer, to ask and answer for themselves. So let me read a little bit of Luther's dilemma personally, and we'll see a little bit of what he was agonizing about. This is from Luther's own recount about 30 years after his conversion. He writes this, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners, and secretly I was angry with God. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Now, that's an understatement, by the way. Luther did rage with a fierce and troubled conscience. We know that he, uh, he went to a monastery after he, uh, ex- uh, he had an experience on the road back home during law school as university training, and uh, he was thrown from his horse and he made a vow that he would become a monk. By St. Anne, Anne, I'll become a monk, he said. And he did. He fulfilled the vow. And then he was trained as a university professor at the same time. During his time as a monk, he spent lots of time beating himself, lying on cold floors, endlessly confessing sins to the point that his superior at the monastery told him this. He said, Martin, stop confessing your sins until you have some big sins to confess. Because Luther was continuously confessing his sins and bothering his superior in the monastery. Finally, though, we're told that he came to his study of Romans chapter 1. This is where it happened for Martin Luther, his breakthrough. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I'm going to read again what he writes about his own experience in studying that, those two verses. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, that is Romans 117, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. He kept going back to those verses, back to those verses. What is there there that I need? At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. He who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the scriptures from memory. 
and also found in other terms, an analogy as the work of God, that is what God does in us, the power of God, that which, with which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God with which he makes us wise, and the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. So this was Luther's breakthrough. He was born again at that point based upon his study, his eager study of Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Christ had found Luther. This is what he says in his own conversion. Christ had found Luther. He studied the scriptures, but Christ found him. In his newfound assurance, he boldly challenged the Roman Catholic Church to see what he had seen. And this is what it had gradually obscured over the centuries. Since about the fourth century or so, it had gradually and increasingly obscured the truth of the gospel as it should have been preached. What Luther rediscovered in his search for a peaceful conscience, we now have today as Protestants. But what was in these two verses that had such an impact on Luther? That is what I hope we'll see today for ourselves. Now, it's true that most everyone here is a believer. I know that. This would seem to be a gospel sermon calling for conversion, calling for repentance. Well, it tells us what that is. But even for believers, that doesn't mean it isn't important for us to hear this. It's always important for us to hear the word of God regardless of where we look, regardless of what the particular topic is in that word of God. So with that said, a little bit of context. Romans was written by Paul. We know that. Uh, This is Paul's most sustained theological argument, and it's extremely sustained and logical. He takes us from man in his sinful lost state all the way to our justification, our sanctification, and ultimate glorification in Christ, and then begins to put practical bones on that skeleton in the rest of the book. For example, man and sin, we find that in chapters 1 and 2. We find it again in chapter 3, an especially important uh, section on man's sin, sinfulness, how bad man really is. Chapter 1 told us the same thing. I just read that this morning. And if we don't understand how bad man is, we don't understand the need for how good God is in Christ. We see in chapter 2 the judgment of sin. God took, uh, God's righteousness is compared to our sinfulness in chapter 3. There's a comparison going on there. In chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, we see once again justification by faith. Even more explicit than in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. In chapter 5, we see peace with God. In chapter 6 and 7, we see sanctification. And in chapter 8, we see the culmination of all of that in, in, uh, in our lives as Christians. Luther understood Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, in the total context of these first eight chapters. Why, by the way, did he understand that so well? Because he actually taught this. He was a professor of theology at Wittenberg University, which was about 10 years old at the time he began teaching. And he had to lecture on books of the Bible. He lectured on Genesis, he lectured on Hebrews, Galatians, but he also lectured on Romans in particular. And we have the record of his lectures, if you care to read those sometime. 
So chapter 1, back to chapter 1 now. In more detail, begin, beginning in verse 14 and following to verse 32. I'm going to make a few comments about what goes on there in the context of Luther's breakthrough. Look first at verse 14. What was Paul so eager to do? He was under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, that is to non, uh, to, to, uh, to, to Christians, uh, to non-Jews and to Jews, both to the wise and to the foolish, everyone. He was under obligation. He was eager to preach the gospel to them in Rome. Why was he so eager? Simple, because of what follows. Verses 16 and 17, which I'll get to later. I'm going to skip over those for the moment. Then following verses 16 and 17, he takes us through the litany of man's sinfulness. This is how bad we can actually be because, of we're, because we are born with a sin nature. He points it out very clearly. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's an interesting phrase. He tells us in, in the next verse that they know what the truth is, but they suppress it. Why? Because they're unrighteous, because they're born with a sin nature that refuses to see that truth until their minds are opened, until then they're blinded. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. But we don't see them until, we're, until our minds are opened by the Holy Spirit. We're without excuse because we are the ones who are sinning. We're the ones who are born with a sin nature. So we're responsible for that sin nature and for the actions that follow that sin nature. So we have no excuse. He continues, verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Once again, we see this state of man apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit and the work of God in our hearts and our minds to bring us to Jesus Christ. We are without excuse and we're futile in our thinking. We cannot even think correctly in our lives. Now, that's something that a lot of people refuse to see. They will say, well, look at these non-Christians out here who think well. They can do good things. They can come up with uh, scientific breakthroughs and they can, uh, they can write good books about various subjects and be accurate about it. Yes, they can. But even that comes by the grace of God, the common grace of God given to men in general. Otherwise, we would all be equally incapable of anything. and would all be equally bad as everyone else. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Idolatry is a part of this. This is idolatry, by the way. Now, of course, we don't worship statues. We don't make statues of reptiles and birds and animals. We have our own idols today. They're different. They're not physical anymore. They're our goals in life. They're the things we aspire to do. They're the things our pride says we need to do. But they're still idols, just as much as, our, as any statues that people made in ancient times. We pride ourselves in being so modern, but we're not. We're still in the same state they were in then. Just a different manifestation of it. Let me go to the end now. He says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. And then he proceeds to give us examples of some of those acts of unrighteousness and malice and covetousness. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's pretty bad. That's a bad catalog of sins. And that's just, those are just examples of sins. We could think of numerous, almost infinite variety of sins besides these. This is what we are apart from Christ. This is why Luther had such a troubled conscience. In fact, Luther tells us, by the way, that he said, you know, if a man could get to heaven by monkery, and he was a monk, so monkery is what he did. If a man could get to heaven by monkery, I would be there. Because I did everything necessary for a monk and better than that. But he realized it was impossible. So what do we see in summary here? First, humans are hopelessly lost in their own sinful state. Hopelessly. Sin affects every person. And it affects every aspect of every person. Our minds, our wills, our affections, all of us. If you go back to Genesis 3, you could see this. See the beginning of this, this, this despair. I'm not going to read it, but you see the fall. And you see what happened at the fall, the results of the fall. Very clearly. If you go forward to Romans chapter 3, you can see the results again. Very clearly. I'm just going to read a few verses from Romans 3 just to show you. Again, the depth of despair that Luther found himself in. And also we do until Christ. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better, better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, the mind. No one seeks for God, the will. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one, our actions. Their throat is an open grave, our speech. They use their tongues to deceive, once again, our speech. The venom of asps is under their lips, again, he's emphasizing our speech. As an, as an expression of what we are inside. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There's our actions again. And their paths are ruin and misery. There are the consequences of our actions, our sinful actions. And the way of peace they have not known because they don't seek peace. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a, that's a bad state. A very bad state. And that's an understatement to say that. As Paul wrote in Ephesians, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Incapable of anything on our part to move toward God as those people in the Middle Ages had said you could. Go back and think about it again. This is what Luther had to deal with. If a man does the best he can, God owes him grace. Oh yes, he's thinking. They're telling me I can do something and achieve my salvation because God then owes me the grace that will get me there. Hopefully, at least. There was no doctrine of assurance in the Roman Catholic Church, so he still didn't know it, but he thought he had a better chance if that's what happened. 
Second, though, we see the solution to this dilemma. And that brings us back to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Why is Paul so intensely eager to preach this gospel? Because it brings life. And I'm going to get to that right now. Begin with the very first part of verse 16. It begins with a little word for. Okay, simple word. What does he mean that? It could be translated as because, and it takes us back to verse 14. Once again, I'll read it. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome because he found it. Paul did, and then Luther later rediscovered it. The gospel itself, and experienced the gospel itself, the saving power of that gospel. It connects us to verses 15 and 16, and it could be read this way. Because I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What is it about this gospel that makes it so crucial for Paul and for Luther later? In verse 16, Paul writes, for it is the power of God for salvation. The power of God for salvation. Interesting phrase. The gospel is God's power. It's what he's saying. This can only mean one thing. That first, it is an absolutely necessary part of salvation for anyone. Because without the power, there's no salvation. It's absolutely necessary for any human being to come to God through Christ. It's necessary to come through the gospel. The preaching of the gospel and the reception of that gospel. We sometimes downplay the importance of the gospel, even unintentionally. But Paul tells us this is a mistake. God's power to save is designed to use the gospel. The ordinary means of salvation is through the preaching, the teaching, the hearing of the gospel. Not just suddenly somebody spontaneously saying, I don't know anything about the gospel, but I'm coming to Christ. That's not the way God works He works through that gospel that Paul found and that Luther rediscovered. But second, it's God's power used for salvation. Notice it has a specific defined purpose, the salvation of individual souls. Not collective salvation, but the salvation of individual souls. It's not intended as as some kind of social tool either, even though Christians certainly may and should be compassionate, but that follows the results of the proclamation of the gospel. It's not the gospel itself. Our compassion comes out of the gospel. Even our social compassion comes out of the gospel. Without the gospel, it's an empty shell. It's good works, but it does nothing, really, and not very long. It is not intended to give some kind of group salvation, as I said, through some magic words. No, it's proclaimed so that it can affect individuals. Luther understood that. So God exercises his power to save people in and through the gospel. Now, I uh, want us to see that it is the gospel, not something else also here. Not some false gospel, as we see mentioned in Galatians. Not the proclamation that we should merely be nice 
or good people. Again, that's useless. That's an empty shell. The gospel alone, when God makes it effective in our life, is powerful to save. And that alone. Now let's go on to the second part of verse 16. Second part, the gospel brings salvation generally to everyone who believes. He says at the beginning. Notice again verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We'll start there. But in case he was misunderstood, Paul adds to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile, the non-Jew. The gospel in this way is all-inclusive. There's no human being left out of the possibility of experiencing the power of the gospel. It ought to be offered to any and all people. That seems self-evident, but sometimes we don't. We miss that fact. It should be offered to any and all people. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone's going to believe it. That's the power of God determining that through his spirit. Go back to the first part of of this phrase and connect it with the last part of the previous phrase. Salvation to everyone who believes. Not everyone, but everyone who believes, and that belief has to come through God himself, as Ephesians tells us clearly that faith itself is a gift of God. True salvation comes only to those who actually and really believe in the gospel. It can't come to those who don't believe they're still in their sin. Now, Luther understood that too. You see, in his own day, go back to what I said about about what people were teaching in Luther's day. You do, do what you can. Do what's naturally in yourself. You're born with this ability to make a move toward God. That says you have a part in your salvation. Luther says no. Paul says no. And God says no. We can't. Luther called it a passive righteousness. That means we do nothing and God does everything. Let's go to verse 17 now. Let me read it again for us. For in it, in it that is the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This was Luther's center of the center for him. It begins with a four, since it is connected to verse 16. It is the gospel he's talking about here. This is made clear for in it, he says, in it being the the it being the gospel, The next phrases tell us what is in the gospel and define what it means to be justified in God's sight. Now, it doesn't give us the content yet. It doesn't tell us the what we are to believe. I'll read that at the very end of the sermon. I'm going to take us to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and show you sort of a typical summary of the gospel there, the content of the gospel. Right now, he's telling us what we have, have to have to hear the gospel, to respond to the gospel correctly. What is in the gospel? What does it possess that's so powerful? That's the question for us and for Luther. First, the righteousness of God is revealed. What is that? The righteousness of God is revealed. Well, here's God. He's righteous. Completely righteous. Completely holy. Completely perfect in everything he is. We're not. He says that righteousness that belongs to God is revealed to whom? Us. How? In the gospel, the phrase righteousness of God can mean either, first, the righteousness that belongs to God, and it does mean that, or second, 
the righteousness that comes from God. And it means that too here. It means both of these. It has both senses. Righteousness, complete righteousness, belongs only to God. And through the gospel, it comes to us. The righteousness that comes from God. That's what he's emphasizing here. That's what Luther was emphasizing in his breakthrough in the gospel. God gives something to sinners while they are yet sinners. We're told that often in the Bible. And it comes from outside the sinner. When you're born, you have no capability of achieving a relationship with God. So the righteousness that belongs to God must come to you from outside yourself. You can't generate it internally. You can't get it through some other means. God has to bring it to you. It is righteousness. Now, this doesn't mean that we become like God. When the righteousness of God comes to us, it has the sense of this. And this is Luther's breakthrough again. The sense of God declaring that we are now seen by God as if we were righteous. What do we call this? Justification. We say we're justified. And that's what Luther found, rediscovered. That through the gospel, we are justified by faith. We're declared righteous. We're forgiven of our sins. We're declared righteous. We're seen by God as if we were righteous, even though we really aren't when we're declared righteous. But now we'll see that there is a cause for this act of justification. It says God's righteousness is revealed from faith for faith. That's interesting. This little phrase, faith for faith, it's actually an all-encompassing phrase. It kind of means faith from beginning to end, faith from first to last, from faith for faith or from faith to faith, it's often translated. Faith all the way through. And faith is what? Reminded again in Ephesians, a gift of God all the way through from first to last. So that's the cause of our righteousness, our justification by God is our faith. It's often called by theologians the instrumental cause of justification. The thing without which you can't be justified. But it can't come on our own. It can only come through God. And it means our whole Christian life is also lived by this continuing faith. Remember I said faith from first to last. Faith from beginning to end. It isn't just faith this one time. And then I begin to do things my own way. In my own power. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 teach. It's faith all the way through. From beginning of our salvation and justification to the end in glorification and everything in between and sanctification. The whole process is lived by faith and that faith comes from God continuously through his spirit working in us. Well, In other words, God has ordained that faith is the instrument by which our justification must come. Faith alone, one of the solas of the Reformation. Sola fide, Luther said. And then we continue to look to God in faith our entire lives. Now here's a question. What is faith? What is it? It's easy to talk about the word, easy to throw the word around, but what in the world is the word faith in this context? There are many possible bad answers to that question. There's only one right answer. Faith is not faith in faith. Faith is not faith in some other human being. 
Faith is not faith in hope. Faith is not uh, faith in things. There's only one right answer here. Faith in one person alone to save alone. And that is Jesus Christ. And that's what Luther is rediscovering here in verse 17. Now we come now to the final phrase which Luther said he beat upon. The righteous or the just shall live by faith. The righteous is the justified one. That's the person who's been justified or will be justified, declared righteous, forgiven of sin. We already know what faith is. The word live here means this, that a person can only live spiritually once he has tasted the justification that comes through faith. So what he means is this. The person who, what, who desires to live and not die spiritually must be justified in Christ. That's how Luther understood this text. That's how most theologians have understood this text ever since until we have the influence of modernity, which has changed the meaning considerably, for the worse. But that's what Luther meant. Justification by faith for the one who desires to live. That's what it's about here. Now, until that point, that person is without hope. They're dead. Dead in sins and trespasses. This was Luther's rediscovery that shook the Christian world. Within weeks of his first publication, or not his first, but his second publication, actually, on that church door, it was spread all over Europe. And uh, people were reading it in, in France, the Catholic stronghold of Europe. It went to England. It went to uh, Spain. didn't last long there, but it went to Spain. Uh, it went to Scotland. It went to the German states. And pretty soon everyone was buzzing about Luther's new ideas. Some people would call them newfangled ideas. But by God's grace, Luther's breakthrough, his Reformation moment shook the entire Christian world. In fact, one theologian wrote later on in the 19th century, and I think he's, this is apropos, he said, this is the article on which the church itself stands or falls. If we deny justification by faith alone, through grace, it's a gift of God, we have disemboweled, to put it rather crudely, the gospel, eviscerated it, Cut a big hole in it. There's nothing left anymore of the gospel. We're back to the Middle Ages again. Do the best you can. Then God owes you grace and maybe you'll make it. Maybe not, but maybe so. If we give this up, we cease to be the church of God. That was Luther's message. That was Paul's message. That's God's message, I submit to us. And finally, let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for us which gives us the actual content of that gospel so that we're clear on what it is this gospel is about. Paul writes in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. There it is. Uh, that I preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So he's making uh, the preface here is this is the gospel. This is what saves you. 
If you don't believe this, you're lost. What is it? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. First, that Christ died for our sins. Sounds simple. It's pretty simple, but it's also infinitely difficult apart from the grace of God. In accordance with the word, with the, with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now notice that just for a second, just we camp on it for just a second. Christ died. It had to be the sacrifice of Christ, his death on the cross for us, for our sins. Notice in our place for our sins. That's an integral part of the gospel. That he was buried. Why does, this, why does it say he had to be buried? Why is that a part of the gospel? Simple, because he had to be dead. That sounds awfully simplistic, but it's true. He didn't just uh, wake up after having fainted on the cross. He was really dead. He was buried, dead. Pretty simple. That he was raised by the Father on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Without the resurrection, once again, we have no hope. All these parts hang together. That's part of the gospel. And by the way, both of them, both the two parts here mention, say in accordance with the scriptures. So the word of God is the foundation for the belief in that. We don't get it outside. We get it from the word of God himself. What God revealed of himself to us desired us to know. We get that. So that's the gospel. That's the content of the gospel. And finally, what about the grace component in all this? I mentioned it off and on. But in verse 17, Paul uses the, the phrase righteousness of God. Well, what does that mean? Besides what I've already said it meant. It meant the righteousness that comes from God to us, and that is equivalent to grace. In the case of justification, it's a grace that says, I'm declaring your righteousness as if you were. In the case of after justification, that's our whole life of Christians as Christians afterwards, it's real grace through the Holy Spirit who lives in us, coming to us and sanctifying us. That's where the grace comes in. It's there in verse 17. And in conclusions, just a few conclusions and applications from all this. Uh, 500 years have, have gone by. The church, much of the church has forgotten the Reformation. And in the process, they've also forgotten the breakthrough that Luther made. And in doing that, they've also forgotten what Paul meant by the gospel in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. That is to the detriment of the Protestant church even. All too many Protestant churches have abandoned the message of justification, partly because they have abandoned the doctrine of man and sin, and partly because they don't see Jesus as being an effective savior for anyone. Because he was just a man at best. He wasn't God. He couldn't have been God. So he couldn't do anything. Not really. He could be an example to us, but that's all. So what we've seen is an, is, is a, an abandonment on the part of much of the Protestant church. And we could forget the Catholic church for a moment. Just the Protestant church of which we are a part. No one should stand in the pulpit and preach anything other than that gospel. But we have so much of that today. We need another reformation, I would submit. 
And it can only come by the grace of God as it came to Martin Luther back all those many years ago. There are others too. There was John Calvin. There was Huldreich Zwingli. There are many others living during that time who carried on that same work, developed it more fully. But Luther was the beginning and he gave us, the, he showed us the path as Protestants from the word of God, scripture alone. And we need to take that seriously 500 years later. Not abandon it, but proclaim it boldly. Let's pray.